Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Many American cities have witnessed protests and looting during the spring and summer of 2020, but none witnessed more sustained violence and chaos than Seattle and Portland, two fairly well-to-do cities that aren't exactly bywords for poverty and racism. One analyst who's been following all of this closely, in part because it's playing out in his own Pacific Northwest backyard, is Christopher F. Rufo, director of Seattle's Center on Wealth and Poverty at Discovery Institute. He joined me recently to discuss why these two cities in particular continue to simmer even after protests and looting in other U.S. cities had stopped. I also asked Mr. Rufo to explain the origins and meaning of Seattle's so-called Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ, also known as the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest, or CHOP. And a note for listeners, my conversation with Mr. Rufo took place after Seattle City Council reduced the pay of Police Chief Carmen Best, but before she resigned from that position in mid-August. And now, here are excerpts from our conversation. I think a lot of people have heard reports of the so-called CHAZ, or CHOP, this autonomous zone, Am I right that this was a part of Seattle where police simply were not entering for a period of several weeks? You're absolutely right. Yeah, it really was truly an autonomous zone that was governed by anarchists and socialists and Black Lives Matter activists explicitly on social justice principles. And at the beginning, it was also guarded by barricades and armed men with a group called the John Brown Gun Club. They're kind of the sister organization to Antifa that are Second Amendment activists as well. And it was really an extraordinary moment in Seattle's history and I think in America's history because it was the first example of a self-governing society explicitly on the principles of racial and social justice. I think it was almost like a laboratory experiment in what happens when ideology turns into governance. And it turned out, I think, to the prediction of many of us to be a total disaster. I mean, you had segregated facilities. So there were gardens for white residents of the Chaz and gardens for black residents of the Chaz. You had no functioning group of people making decisions. And eventually it kind of devolved into warlordism and violence. And the homicide rate in the 20 something day history of the Chaz was something like 50 times higher than Chicago. And This society that was erected under the banner of Black Lives Matter ended up leading to the loss of life for a number of black men who were shot and killed. Seattle's not the place that I would have picked for an anarchist warlord society. Why Seattle and not, I don't know, Cincinnati, Orlando? See, I've been to Seattle. It has its problems, but it's also a progressive place. It's reasonably wealthy. There's just something about the Pacific Northwest. If you look at Seattle, Washington or Portland, Oregon, it is really the epicenter. It's ground zero for the most extreme hard left and anarchist ideological movements. And it's been this way for a long time. Seattle had 
socialist politicians a century ago. It was really the home of the Wobblies and the international workers of the world for some time in the last century. And then has progressively been a place where radical politics happens and is tolerated. And if you look at the kind of modern origins that I think are the precursor to the Chaz Chop experience, it's really the anti-WTO protests of now 20 years ago. I remember that. Specifically in 1999, I remember reading an article about how a place called Eugene, Oregon, which I'd never heard of, was apparently some kind of epicenter But you're telling me it's not specific to the anti-globalization movement. This is part of a larger phenomenon? Yeah, I think these are a lot of the same people whose ideology has simply evolved. At the time, it was really kind of hardcore traditional anarchists and anti-globalization protesters that wanted to stop the globalized free market and what they, I think, would characterize as neoliberal or kind of neo-imperialist structures. But I think what's happened is over the last 20 years, that ship has really sailed. The WTO has really solidified. The free trade system has strengthened. And in a sense, that battle was lost. But the people and the structures and the ideals remained. And I think it's really interesting to see how they've changed as the economic issues have lost their salience, right? The traditional Marxist class conflict oppressor and oppressed, factory owner and landlord versus proletarian. That language and that idea has really lost its power, lost its salience. But what's gained really to an extraordinary degree in the last five years, a tremendous amount of power is the idea of oppressor and oppressed based on racial lines. So where you used to have the kind of economic Marxists, you now have a race-based Marxist ideology. And I think that the Chaz Chop is really just the expression of that change. In the context of Portland, one of the interesting statistics I saw was that of all major metropolitan areas in the United States, Portland is among the whitest. And I get the sense that Seattle is fairly white too, as compared to other major cities. Does it seem strange to you that some of the most militant forms of social justice race politics are playing out in these cities that are disproportionately white? Yeah, I mean, I think it is in a sense surprising, right? It's counterintuitive. But when you really peer beneath the surface, it becomes clear that these are political radicals that will latch on to any narrative that can be useful as a means to an end. And I think all of the surface level focus, all of the media focus is predominantly about the racial issues. But I think under the surface of that is an ideology that is much more driven uh, by longstanding Marxist history and ideology and conception of the revolution. My read is that if you look at the profile of activists, and again, at the Chaz Chop, currently on the streets of Portland, it's been happening all year, You see predominantly white, young, in many cases, college-educated activists pummeling middle-class black police officers in the name of Black Lives Matter. It doesn't make any sense. But if you think of it in terms of the activists are using race and racial rhetoric as a means to achieve the end, everything becomes much clearer. They want to destroy tradition and start history anew. At Quillette, we had an author named Nancy Rommelman who moved from the Pacific Northwest back to her original home in New York recently. 
And she wrote this great piece for us about why she was leaving. She was talking about social and economic factors. She talked about these very idealistic, very bright, largely white, young couples moving into gentrifying neighborhoods. They're not from the community. They have very high ideals when it comes to social justice. They become the source of a lot of this discontent and sometimes violence, as opposed to grassroots people in the community who have been there for generations and maybe who have more to complain about from a social justice point of view. She described it almost as a social phenomenon. I think that she's absolutely right. And I kind of think of it as almost equal parts, 50-50. What you've described accurately, in my view, is the social psychology of these protesters and rioters and street activists. And I think once that, really almost a sense of personal frustration and failure Uh, You have an overeducated products of the elite uh, that have underperformed economically. They're downwardly mobile. They're downwardly mobile. They've underperformed socially. When you take that kind of fragile and angry and frustrated personal and social psychology and you combine it with an ideological platform that, again, has almost 200 years of history behind it, that has been refined in order to galvanize people who feel that same sense of frustration it's a really explosive chemical reaction. And I think what you're getting is both. You're getting disaffected, underperforming elites, trying to explain away their own failures and then essentially change society. And I think that's exactly what's happening. We're having this conversation in mid-August. And I think there's been a period of reflection in the last few weeks about some of these more radical calls to eradicate the police. And I just saw an article in the New York Times, which cannot be accused of being a conservative mouthpiece, in which the reporter was interviewing local lawmakers in the New York City area. And some of these lawmakers who represent districts that have a lot of disadvantaged Black and Latino residents, they're appalled by the idea of getting rid of the police. And they are coming up in conflict against wealthier, whiter enclaves that do want to get rid of the police It's kind of ironic. I'm not sure how fair it is to blame this on Marxism, because Marxism, of course, is all about helping the oppressed. A lot of the leading radicalized voices in this case seem to be more privileged white people who are purporting to voice the frustrations of impoverished black people, but are, in some cases at least, doing so incorrectly. Is it fair to blame Marx for this? Yeah, I I think it is. And I think if you actually look at the history of Marxist movements, that's almost always the case where you have elites and later the traditional Marxist theory was refined where they said, well, we can't rely on the proletariat who has been oppressed and imbued with false consciousness for so long. They won't be leading the revolution. So what we need is a vanguard of the proletariat, an elite faction that is steeped in ideology that can lead the revolution from above and bring liberation to the masses. It's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. 
For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuel Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist dot com slash quillette try it free for seven days and save 25 percent off your new subscription that's blinkist spelled b-l-i-n-k-i-s-t blinkist.com slash quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25 percent off and now back to our podcast when white people on social media accuse black people of having illegitimate black views and say they're going to lose their black card is that the equivalent of a Marxist accusing a member of the proletariat of having false consciousness? Yeah, or of being a capitalist road runner. I mean, there's like an amazing vocabulary in China and in Russia describing false consciousness, describing the class traders. But I think the bigger point is this, and I'll give you a specific example I think might help illustrate it. In Seattle, the Chaz Chop experience was mostly white protesters And what they were seeking was to control the Seattle Police Department East Precinct building. They said that this is a fortress of white supremacy in a predominantly and historically black neighborhood that must be overthrown because it is just an arm of white exploitation and domination. But the police chief in Seattle, it's a black woman. Yeah, but the irony is even deeper than that. I talk with some old leaders in the black community in that area, the Central District, where that police precinct serviced. And one told me something that I think was remarkable. She said, none of these white kids that are out there trying to overthrow this police station, none of them know the history. This police station was fought for and budgeted by Seattle's first black city councilman who wanted to have a police station to speed up response times in majority black neighborhoods to provide better public safety services because his constituents were demanding it. And the black community wanted this precinct built. We got it built. And now the white activists who are not from Seattle, don't have any connection with our history, are trying to tear it down on our behalf. 200 plus people, predominantly white activists, they actually went to the home of the black female police chief, Carmen Best, to try to essentially intimidate her, terrorize her neighbors, and fight fascism in their words. There are appalling scenes of police brutality in the United States. Has Seattle itself been the scene of notorious incidents of police brutality against Black people? There are two incidents that activists have talked about. One was the death of Charlena Lyles. The other one, the death of a man, I believe, named Che Taylor. And those are the two stories that people are saying, hey, these are examples of police killings of African-Americans. But I went and actually pulled the data from the Seattle Police Department for all deaths of African-Americans from police shootings. And over the last five years, five black men have been killed in Seattle by police shootings. And in every case, they were armed. 
and they were either reaching for a weapon or brandishing a weapon or threatening to hurt or kill someone else. The case of Charlena Lyles was complicated by the fact that she was mentally ill and acting erratic. Maybe the police could have done a better job at de-escalating. There's some controversy about one of the other shootings. Was the gentleman reaching for the gun or was he reaching for something else? The rhetoric is basically the Seattle Police Department is a right supremacist institution that systematically kills black men. That's the argument that they're making. But I think if you actually look at the facts and you read the reports, I don't think that argument can stand. Not to say that there isn't some disproportionate effects, not to say there isn't specific incidents of police behaving inappropriately. The officers that I know and I've talked to, they all acknowledge, hey, we don't have perfect record. We don't have perfect officers. But among big city police stations, Seattle was known until very recently as one of the most progressive and the best in the country. Does Seattle not have a black civil society institutions that have risen up and said, not in our name, stop doing this. This is not furthering our interests. Has, has there been any political response from within traditional black institutions in Seattle? There has. There was a coalition of black clergy and religious leaders that came to bat for the police chief, Carmen Best, and really spoke out very forcefully against some of the worst elements of the Chaz and the Chop and the Takeover And the community did rise up, but the context of this is also important because the Black community in Seattle over the last 20 years especially has really been scattered through the process of gentrification. The Seattle Black population has actually declined as families leave the city seeking more affordable places outside the city limits. So you have the kind of old African-American establishment that isn't as strong or as dominant as it once was, which I think made the room for the new and media savvy activists to fill that void. The people who are now emboldened that are even every night through July and August of 2020 have been marching on the homes of council members and public officials, rousting them out of bed and telling them, if you don't vote to defund the police, we're going to come back here. We know where you live. My understanding is Seattle has not entirely defunded its police, but I think I saw an article that said the black female police chief, did she get a 40% pay cut? Yeah, you know, the police chief, Carmen Best, she's a 27-year veteran of the Seattle Police Department, well-respected by officers, widely admired in the community up until the recent unrest. They've been attacking her as the leader of the police department from two fronts. Legislatively, they cut her pay 40%, which is from what I've been told, an explicit and deliberate public humiliation. They're cutting the salary of a black female to fight for social justice. Correct. Yeah. Because it's really not about identity. It's about power. And if a black female police chief stands in the way of their power, they will happily abandon identity concerns in pursuit of that. On the one side, they're hammering away legislatively. They made some cuts to the SWAT team and the homelessness outreach team. But the other thing they've been doing is really launching a public intimidation campaign. They're marching on the home of the police chief, marching on the home of the mayor, marching on the home of the council members in a way that one officer described to me as political extortion. Has there been pushback? Does Seattle still have a vibrant municipal local media scene where people can coalesce and enforce basic norms of decency? 
No, not at all. I mean, I think one of the processes that you were describing earlier is really relevant here. So in Seattle, you have a media landscape that is really affected by two trends. One is that the traditional newspapers and legacy media organizations have just been hammered economically. So they've shrunk in size. They've laid off senior reporters. They've laid off the higher paid, more experienced staff. On the one side, on the other side, Seattle, like many of these other tech hubs and prestige cities, has drawn in highly educated young people from around the country and around the world that are willing to work for that $25 or $30 or $40,000 media job. And they're bringing with it no real knowledge of or connection with the community, but they're bringing a very fierce and very focused ideology. So you have young activist reporters. You don't have the more seasoned veterans that are the voice of reason or moderation or public decency. And consequently, you have essentially a mob marching on the home of the police chief, and the local media is cheering it on and essentially snuffing out the voices of anyone who opposes them. It's extraordinary. Before I let you go, let's talk a little bit about what happened inside this so-called autonomous area. I'd heard about the violence. I didn't know they created segregated public facilities. Is that right? Yeah, it's right. It's something that I saw on Twitter And I thought it was a prank or a scam or a spoof. So I went down and checked it out with my own eyes and then verified with other folks that were on the scene. And uh, it's very interesting. So what happened was that under this new racial orthodoxy, there's an idea that the world is these two opposing forces of whiteness and blackness, and that in order to increase black autonomy and ownership and participation, there needs to be separate spaces for African-Americans only and then parallel spaces for whites only. And it was really almost everything. They had meeting spaces where they had people guarding the sports field saying, this is an African-Americans only meeting that we're having. They had separate gardening facilities that were kind of fenced off. And this was for BIPOC gardens, black, indigenous, and people of color. And then there was the white gardens. To my astonishment, nobody saw the terrible irony of this. And in fact, they used critical race theory to justify it. And my conclusion, if you look at the actual social structure and the emerging governance structure of the CHAS, it's a laboratory experiment in social justice as governance. And what emerged was not greater equality. What actually emerged in practice, and I think consistent with their philosophy, is a reverse hierarchy of oppression. So the idea being that in the outside society, in the traditional society, in the historical society, there is a kind of hierarchy of oppression. And rather than trying to flatten that into this new equality, we're actually going to just flip that hierarchy, flip that pyramid, and institute a hierarchy of reverse oppression. And now a message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp the online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At BetterHelp.com, you'll connect with your professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment using secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Anything you share is, of course, strictly confidential. While BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in under 24 hours. When self-help methods aren't enough and you seek professional counseling, BetterHelp can connect you to a network of thousands of licensed therapists. And you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in sleep, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. 
So many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 U.S. states. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. There's no awkward waiting room, and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. Financial aid is available in some cases. Join over 1 million others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code Quillette. Just go to BetterHelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. I've read accounts of some of these utopian experiments at other points in history. Often... There's this initial period, this euphoric moment, and it's peaceful, and there's a spirit of brotherhood. It sounds like for the first few days that was true in this autonomous zone in Seattle. Is that correct? Yeah, it really was. It was kind of the street party, summer of love. Once they had successfully vanquished the Seattle Police Department's riot squad and then taken control of the East Precinct building, it was jubilation. It was triumph. People were very excited. They showed movies in the streets. They had showed documentaries in the streets. They had music. They had parties. And uh, the problem, I think, though, is that the radicals and the activists, progressives, have maintained a posture of eternal protest. So they're really only effective and their limits are only to thinking of themselves as overthrowing the system, protesting the system, destroying the system. And then all of a sudden, one of my friends and sources in the Seattle Police Department, he said, after we left the East Precinct, it was like the dog that catches the car. What do we do now? So when they made that transition, you asked before, is it the Chaz or the Chop? Well, first it was the Chaz because they said, this is the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. We are going to govern this area according to our social justice principles and establish a new society. But once the things started falling apart, they had a meeting and they said, hey, we don't want to be responsible for this. This is going south quickly. It's a disaster. It's kind of cascading into violence and destruction. So we want to change the name to the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest, which is consonant with their idea of eternal protest while pushing away any responsibility for governance. I read a slightly different version of that. And the version I read was that once the autonomous zone was created, there were a bunch of people who their response was, hey, this is great, party time. And then there were more serious protest-minded people who were like, no, no, no partying, no laughing, no smiling, no having fun. This is about social justice protest, everyone focus. And the name change was part of that. What was happening is that in the daytime, it was fun. It was like a, a street fair. They had speeches and bands and food vendors. It was a true block party. It does sound fun. The problem, though, was at night, what would happen as the tourists and the daytimers would leave, there was a vacuum of activity and a vacuum of power. And that's when armed criminal gangs started patrolling the streets and beating people up. There were multiple shootings. There was these big drunken brawls between rival gangs. And it was really this lawless zone that was devolving quickly into anarchy and at the same time, they couldn't bring in the police force to restore order. So that's really the moment where things got out of control and they tried to tighten the reins. How demoralizing was that for the police? You train your whole career to serve and protect. And of course, by the way, there are bad apples in every police force. It's for the people who aren't bad apples, they're watching on TV. This is the sort of thing that they're supposed to prevent. You mentioned you had at least one contact within the Seattle police force. I'm guessing this must be a demoralizing phenomenon for them. 
Yeah, when I spoke to him during the autonomous zone period, you know, this is a veteran police officer. He said, this is the worst week of my career. And he described basically being on mandatory 12-hour shifts, night after night after night, and then simultaneously getting pummeled with bricks and explosives and bottles and rocks by protesters, and then getting pummeled with all kinds of agitprop by the media that was villainizing the police as this fascist force. So the officers that I've talked to are demoralized and they feel like they are losing the battle of public opinion and they are on the defensive and unable to effectively do their duty, which is maintain public order. I mean, it's pretty humiliating for a city and a police force to essentially cede control of six blocks to armed paramilitaries. That is an astonishing thing. I don't think we should forget it. I'm originally from Montreal, and there was this famous incident in the 60s where the police went on strike for a day. They didn't come to work, and there was no policing in the city. And in that 24-hour period, there was bedlam. There was a bunch of taxi drivers who they had, I think for years, they had some ongoing feud with a bunch of limo drivers. And I think they drove a bus through their building or something. Like, it was just crazy stuff. Did that happen in Seattle? I, I read one article that said there was a settling of accounts between gangs that took place in this area. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what happened in the Chaz territory. It was a lawless place. And the most interesting character to emerge during the whole saga was a guy named Roz Simone. And he is a rapper. He is a person with a long and checkered past. And he showed up at the Chaz, passing out high-powered rifles from the trunk of his white Tesla and then basically roved around this place at night, allegedly beating people up, and really became the warlord of the Chaz. There's video of him basically saying, there's no police here, we're the police now. Has he been held to account for this? No, this guy actually last year received a $80,000 grant from the city of Seattle to open a recording studio to help black hip-hop artists. I mean, this is the thing that is so insane, is that in any kind of rational world, having a outlaw warlord assaulting people and beating people up in an autonomous zone of a major American city, you'd have a severe consequence. But if anything, this was really good for his PR, good for his reputation, and there was no discernible consequence. And I think that's what, when I talk to people in law enforcement in the city of Seattle, that's where they're most concerned. The Chaz was kind of the headline grabber, the sensational spectacle but what's happened since then is that there are roving groups of people almost every night that are smashing the windows of a Starbucks, smashing the windows of a bank, smashing the windows of a grocery store, uh, looting a small business. And there is the sense that as the whole downtown commercial core is boarded up now for months, it's kind of a lawless place. The police department is unable and the political class is unwilling to restore order. And it's frightening. People are really, truly scared for the city and for their own safety. Have you heard from any protest leaders who have candidly said, we had dreams for this autonomous zone, but turns out we were wrong? No. I mean, among activists, it's precisely the opposite. The kind of default position for these folks, and this is something that dates back for all of the years that I've been observing it, is if something doesn't work out empirically, like if they try something and it fails, and even if they say, well, that didn't work, the solution, the diagnosis is that we just didn't go far enough. And that's what I'm seeing right now among activists. 
we tried the CHAS, but really we needed to just abolish the police. And now they're trying to abolish the police. They got some significant cuts, but now they're saying we need more cuts. So it really is a kind of worldview that is always snowballing. Whatever happens, the answer is always more revolution. I have actually a quote in front of me. And one of the protest leaders says, we must align ourselves with the global struggle that acknowledges the United States plays a role in racialized capitalism from Ferguson to Palestine. And then she says, quote, the patriarchy, white supremacy and classism, you know, end quote, must be destroyed. Christopher Rufo, thank you so much for joining the Quillette podcast. Thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.